You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thanks a million. Thanks for the introduction. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this series. Uh, we were just talking before this that, um, you know, the book is it's trying to do quite a lot of things, and it comes out of 10 years of, of talking, myself and Naomi, um, about shared interests in literature, in history, ecology, social movements, political theory. And so it's a kind of a synthesis of a lot of that, but I feel really happy that this is an environmental history seminar and you've asked, asked us to, to kind of present on it. Um, it's also the first book talk that I've given. So the book came out in July and we had the launch in September uh, with Rory Rowan kind of facilitating. And that was a dialogue, myself and Naomi, and we've done a few podcasts, but it's also been, it, it's always been quite like dialogic and conversational. So this is the talk and it feels a bit, um, I'm a bit unsure what to do because I've got 30 minutes and I'm not going to be able to sort of cover everything. So what I thought I would do is structure around these three questions, which hopefully get at some of the key arguments in the book. Um, and hopefully in some of the examples that I use to illustrate those arguments gives you a flavor of like, you know, what the book's doing and how it's doing it. So the first question um, is uh, related to this argument that we make, which is that what we call modern environmentalism um, is um, and how it has sort of developed and consolidated since the 1950s and 60s um, is not just um, not helping us address environmental problems, climate change, biodiversity loss and so on, but that it may also be um, reproducing forms of dis dispossession and social injustice. So the, the provocation there is that might seem quite counterintuitive because modern environmentalism should be about making environments better, you know, improving environments, and it certainly shouldn't be about dispossession and social injustice. But an argument in the book is that that is, 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 is happening and we need to try to understand why that's happening and what some of the assumptions are that modern environmentalism is based on that kind of lead to those results. So that's one part. The second part, which is the second question, is to get beyond that critique. And the book isn't really a critique of modern environmentalism. That's one kind of, I would say, small strand. The main focus of the book is to try to sort of get at this um, idea which is that there have been many movements, sites of struggle since the 50s and 60s and longer, but the book really focuses on that period from the 50s and 60s, that have not acted in the name of the environment or used the term environmentalism, but have been absolutely about the care of ecologies of non-human species, about trying to um, advance you know, forms of human, non-human relations that are about flourishing, that are about justice. So, you know, why is it that they haven't used the, the terms of, of environmentalism? Why have they not been given the name of environmentalism? Why do they not count within our understanding of modern environmentalism? And I guess, why should we be looking at those sites of struggle and those movements? Um, and that gets to the final point about the book's key contribution and how, you know, uh, um, a kind of a, a better sort of attention or focus to these histories of movements beyond environmentalism might help us today. So that's a lot to get through in 30 minutes. Um, I'm going to sort of start maybe the next 10 minutes with stuff that's a bit like laying the groundwork. 
And then I'm going to try and spend most of the talk looking at two particular examples from the book, which are the kind of histories, the kind of thick histories. And those are really what the book is about. And I, I hope that's what makes the book more readable. And um, certainly it's what I'm mostly interested in. So modern environmentalism, what is it? So um, I guess historically, I've already said, we're thinking about this period from the 50s and 60s. So after World War II, particularly centered in the US, um, Western Europe, you have uh, the development of a lot of new uh, industrial technologies, you know, massively accelerated by World War II. Um, you have the expansion of industrial production, again, accelerated by World War II. And you have new kind of, you know, materials, new kinds of synthetic materials being mass produced, such as um, plastics, again, massively accelerated by World War II. So these kinds of technologies, modes of production, are kind of translating from wartime to civilian time. And they are not without problems, obviously, social problems, um, but also environmental problems. And those environmental problems are, modern environmentalism is basically that the response to this uh, uh, sort of moment. And so this is concerns around the risks associated with these technologies, so things like pesticides and chemicals, which I'll get to a little bit later on. Uh, nuclear is a massive one, so uh, you know concerns around nuclear fallout, radioactivity, nuclear war. It's that's crucial to the kind of forging of a sort of modern environmental sensibility, kind of existential angst at a global scale. Um, uh, and also large infrastructure projects, suburbanization, you know, cars, you know, uh, uh, these are the sorts of things where there is a response. So that's, that all kind of makes sense. And in the 60s, this response can go in different ways. And the response is really a critique of this kind of, this industrial production, this industrial technology. But what we see uh, or argue in the book is from very early on, the way in which these concerns are being articulated and expressed and presented and ultimately institutionalized are um, partial. And the way in which they're partial is that they um, tend to annex environmental concerns around non-human species, around the quality of the environment, around landscapes, to annex those problems away from other social concerns or questions, specifically things to do with race, class, colonialism, neo-colonialism, imperialism. So even though those connections are there, what, what sort of develops as modern environmentalism and over the next 50 to 60 years is about annexing environmental concerns away from those other concerns. Um, and we kind of uh, talk about this, this sort of partiality or the kind of uh, narrowing of, of modern environmentalism in terms of these three blind spots. Um, and these three blind spots really hinge around um, a kind of the inheritance of a much longer tradition of thinking about nature without people. Um, so we're thinking here about colonial geographies, and you could add colonial histories. Um, you know, the, the key example there is uh, kind of uh, kind of imaginaries around the wilderness, just from the nineteenth century. John Moore has a much longer history in terms of. Um, European colonialism, of thinking about these lands as uh, unpeopled or having to actively unimagine communities that already lived in these places, to use an expression of Rob Nixon. Um, so that's the, the colonial geographies, labor. So within modern environmentalism, there is a, you know, uh, uh, 
a long history of sort of ambivalence at best and hostility, uh, you know, many times towards labor, towards work, particularly industrial work and mechanized work and the kinds of technology that go with that. And the flip side of that is, is a sort of a, an, a, an under-accounting for the types of um, uh, sort of reproductive labor, which eco-feminists, indigenous scholars have pointed to, which is about that labor, which is about maintaining ecologies, about you know, sort of reparative ecologies, repair work. Um, and so th the question there is about thinking about, okay, you know, there is always labor, there always needs to be work. So under what conditions is that work going to be you know, conducive to flourishing ecologies? And then the third is lived ecologies. And what that's getting at is questions of science and expertise and the ways in which there, um, again, certain kinds of um, uh, scientific e expertise have become dominant, which are premised on some idea of a universal nature and a universal science. So here we're drawing on feminist SDS, um, uh, science technology studies, people like Donna Haraway, this idea of a kind of a God trick of a view from nowhere, as opposed to thinking about situated knowledge, situated expertise, um, and the kind of everyday experiments that are very much a part of a lot of the social movements that I'm going to describe now, which are movements beyond environmentalism. So just as one example, agroecology, which is a kind of a theme throughout the book, which is, um, you know, uh, about uh, forms of agricultural practice that understand, uh, you know, growing food and so on within this wider ecological context that is both local but also very much linked up with international networks and knowledge exchange. Um, okay, so those are the three blind spots. Um, one thing that, just before I go on to movements beyond environmental, it, it, is that in the book we talk quite a lot about aesthetics and the kinds of aesthetics of modern environmentalism. And in the kind of the chapters, each of them starts off with a particular event or a particular image or a particular text that we see as quite um, significant to the ways in which modern environmentalism develops like an aesthetic consistency. One of them is the idea of the single shared planet. So this is the 1968 moonrise picture, um, which, so from very early on, modern environmentalism is, is at a planetary, has a, an understanding of a shared planet. And you see that, you know, 50 years later in these kinds of images of the Anthropocene, and in the book, we're not saying that things don't change. Things obviously change a huge amount. Um, but there is something about this aesthetic consistency which we think is important and that we are basically trying to interrogate. Okay, so movements beyond environmentalism, where do they fit in? So very simply, we're interested in thinking about these other sites of struggle, other movements, other, other thinkers and other figures that are... Um, articulating care for ecologies, defense of livelihoods, the cultivation of ways of life where humans and non-humans thrive together within much older and wider traditions than what we know as modern environmentalism. And so these kinds of threads or histories have often centered on decolonization, on land and access to land and rights around land, on environmental health, and also in resistance to um, large-scale infrastructural projects. So the kinds of names that they have gone by, and these are international networks, are agroecology, food sovereignty, territorial rights, indigenous sovereignty, earth politics, national liberation, the third world. 
so there's, 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 there's lots of different histories here that are certainly not all, can't all be bunched together. There are massive differences, political differences, geographic differences, cultural differences, and so on. But we are interested in looking at all of this sort of diversity of movements and movement practices, basically for the ways in which they reconnect ecological questions with social questions around race, class, uh, colonialism and, and anti-colonialism. Um, and they, in, in doing that, they create a different kind of aesthetic. If this is a certain kind of aesthetic consistency, well, these movements have a different type of aesthetic. And that, for us, is, is interesting and exciting. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do now is dive into two examples. So one from an early chapter, where we look at the sort of 50s and 60s, and we take as the seminal jumping-off point Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And then the chapter after that, which is looking at the period 68 to 1974. Um, and then there's two further chapters after that, one which is around 80s, the 80s and 90s, and one which is around 2010-12. So the four sort of core chapters are around these four sort of historical periods, which we think are quite crucial, both in terms of consolidating modern environmentalism, but also in terms of there being these alternatives that are surfacing. Okay, so... Um, I'm sure all of you, I know there's quite a few students from the, the Masters here, but I'm sure all of you are familiar with Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. So um, we start the book with this because Silent Spring is seen to be the book that launched, it's often said, that launched the modern environmental movement in 1962. Um, I want to say at the outset that the book and how we, I hope we treat the book in our book is um, out of, you know, um, uh, we're admiration for it. It's, it's not a kind of a, an effort to undermine Carson or the book. The book is still, on rereading it, um, you know, incredibly powerful as a um, sort of a diatribe or a, 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 a sort of a, a critique, which is written so um, carefully and with sort of scientific precision, but also this like poetic verve about DDT. So this chemical pesticide, one of many that had been um, mass-produced during World War II and then in civilian times applied to fields, also houses, to repel mosquitoes and so on, but mostly to fields for um, agricultural production. Um, and so the point we want to take up with the book is that most of the book, what it's focusing on is, um, is the effects of DDT and this, this particular chemical pesticide on non-human species. That's the title of the book. Silent Spring refers to the kind of loss of birds. Um, its effect on water, its effect on land, um, and its effect on, 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 on other animals. But, so, we're not saying that that's wrong, we're saying that that's partial. And so the question is, who else was being affected by DDT? In what ways? And how were they articulating or expressing their opposition to DDT? So the same year that Silent Spring was published is also the year that the United Farm Workers was set up. I mean, what became the United Farm Workers? So this is Del Dolores uh, uh, Huerta and Cesar Chavez, two uh, migrant workers from Mexico who worked in the fields in Southern California, which was the fruit basket of the US, um, where really kind of capitalist agriculture took off. It was the laboratory for capitalist agriculture. I mean, England, of course, but in the kind of post-World War II period, the kinds of technologies that became exported around the world um, were, were developed in California. 
And so the union was founded um, to lobby for and fight for the rights of workers who were incredibly precarious. They were migrant workers, so seasonal work. They were coming in to pick fruit. Their living conditions were terrible, their pay was terrible, but one of the key issues was that working in the fields, they were exposed to these pesticides that were sprayed from planes. You may have seen these images. And so they were getting sick and they were dying. And they didn't know why this was the case. There wasn't a, a sort of extensive scientific data proof that this was the case. So one of the ways they organized or had to organize was around collecting data about their exposure to this toxic chemical toxic chemicals. And so they did that. They also worked with some progressive public health officials and professionals and scientists in what you might now call like a citizen science project, uh, in the sense that it was like citizen or worker-led um, uh, you know, production of knowledge to, to sort of um, bring about regulations and ultimately to try and bring about a ban. And they were very successful. One of the things they did was a great boycott. So it lasted for about five years. And I think one of the interesting things about this is that they linked up their concerns as workers in the fields with the, the health concerns of consumers who were often white, better off, um, middle class consumers, which was all helped by Rachel Carson's book. So it's not that Rachel Carson's book is against what these workers are for. It's actually that these things can work together. They can resonate with one another and actually be kind of mutually you know, helping and amplifying of their causes. Um, so, so that was that's one part of, of the chapter that we look at this other site and this other movement, um, and they were somewhat successful. They managed to get like a uh, advisory committee set up where workers had some kind of oversight of the chemical pesticides that were used. Some of the pesticides were banned, but ultimately the the pesticides, the the chemical companies and the agricultural uh, 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 interests were much faster than regulation, and this is something that we see time and time again with regulation of pollutants, is that every time one is banned, a new one can be created. Um, and ultimately, migrant workers are still being poisoned and die from exposure in fields in California, which is you know, worth pointing out. So then the third site in that chapter that we moved to just quickly is outside of the US. So if we think about DDT and Carson's concerns, we think about the workers in California and their concerns. But also at this time, the Mexican agricultural program is being developed by the US government with the Rockefeller Foundation and other organizations, uh, largely in Mexico, where it's a kind of a laboratory for testing chemical technologies, for testing high yielding grains of wheat and so on, and also uh, irrigation technologies. So these technologies together become what is the Green Revolution, becomes exported from Mexico to India and then to many other countries. It was a strategy of um, deflecting from or suppressing more radical demands for agrarian reform. Uh, ultimately, the impacts on, uh, Mexican, on, on rural Mexico are enormous in terms of uh, replacing uh, much more diverse forms of agricultural practice and economy with monocrops that are reliant on inputs, um, in consolidating land, in forcing campesinos off the land and into cities. And this type of dynamic then happens elsewhere. So this, the program was also resisted in the 50s and 60s by Mexican agronomists and scientists who said this isn't what's best for Mexican uh, society, for Mexican economy. 
for rural campesinos. They had other experimental laboratories where they worked with campesinos in what was really the early days of something like agroecology. So it wasn't called that in the 50s and 60s, but the kind of work they did also moved and also became part of nascent sort of international networks um, and became a kind of a shadow of the Green Revolution and erupted in the 90s, 80s, 90s with Via Campesina and became you know, sort of much stronger. So the point of that is just to show that in that chapter, which is called Suburb Field Laboratory, we're trying to sort of uh, move beyond, uh, you know, the kind of environmental geography or, or geography environmentalism that Rachel Carson sort of most represents to think about other sites and other kinds of struggles and the ways in which they connected with labor, they connected with, um, in this case, I guess you could call it imperialism, um, and land and agrarian reform and work and so on. So that's that example. Um, and you would run out of time and this is the example I wanted to talk about most. So this is a chapter which is called um, Revolt Against One Worldism and it's about the period 1968 to 74 and the chapter starts with a discussion of this book by Barbara Ward and René Dubot, which is called Only One Earth. So it was kind of commissioned in advance of the Stockholm Conference in 1972. There was also a documentary made. And um, it, it sort of captures this idea, going back to that photo of the Earthrise, of what was becoming this sort of um, quite popular trope, the idea of a spaceship Earth, this idea of this sort of fragile orb, which we all share which is a sort of a, a common foundation from which to base a kind of global environmental governance or good environmental governance. And what's interesting is that this is happening, the first sort of major environmental conference, you could call it in Stockholm in 1972, at, at the same time as we are seeing some of the most um, uh, angry and extensive uh, social revolts for you know, at least since the end of World War One, but back to the 19th century. And so, you know, centered in Paris in 68, but extending to cities <coughs> all around the world. Uh, student revolts, worker revolts, farmer revolts. We see at the Stockholm conference, despite being uh, a kind of a, a global conference, obviously Soviet Union is not there, China's not there, because the Cold War is, you know, at a height. That Cold War is manifesting in very hot conflicts across the global south with the third world. And the third world is also, for us, a really in interesting site at this point because you have all of these countries since the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s breaking free of colonial rule and trying to create something else, which is the third world. So the third world, we use the, the Vijay Prashad as a nice line about the third world being a project rather than a place. And so we're trying to go back to this idea of at this time the third world and the non-aligned movement specifically, you know, across Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, was a project for something utopian, a new kind of horizon, which had yet to be determined, which was neither capitalist West or communist East. And what has that got to do with ecology and questions of environment at this time? So we are not the only ones, and in fact the whole book is really based on us summarizing and synth synthesizing work that's already out there. 
there's been a lot of work done by particularly um, post-colonial literary scholars like Rob Nixon, Jennifer Wenzel, uh, Elizabeth Delocri, um, and then also people like Max Igel, who's not a literary scholar, but a, a kind of a political theorist, economist. And I think generally there's been a, a kind of a growing interest in this period of anti-colonial national liberation struggles. But we are specifically in this chapter linking it to ecological questions. So I'm just going to read out a quote from Franz Fanon, who was a you know Africa Caribbean um, uh, writer, a scholar who obviously had become very involved then in the Algerian struggle for um, independence from France in the late 50s, early 60s. But in Wretched of the Earth, which was published just before he died, in fact, um, he has a quote right at the very end in which he says, um, he's addressing his, his comrades and he's talking about what comes after uh, independence and what does that look like. His point is that it can't look like Europe because that would just be an obscene caricature. And he says, if I have it written down here. Yeah, he says here, perhaps it is necessary to begin everything all over again, to re-examine the soil and mineral resources, the rivers, and why not the sun's productivity. And, uh, you know, Franz Fanon is not particularly concerned with the environment or ecological questions, right? But there is something in this, particularly in, in anti-colonial thinkers like Sylvia Winter, um, Nkrumah, um, you know, Fanon, uh, Cabral, as I'll get to talking to in a second, there is an understanding that, um, you know, the liberation struggle doesn't just end once you have formal independence. There is this question then of what do you do with the land, what do you do with the rivers, what do you do with the forests? How can these be de developed for the interests of formerly colonized peoples as part of a project of national sovereignty and self-determination? That is an ecological question and an ecological project. And one of the figures that we talk about in the book who articulates this probably most clearly is Amilcar Cabral, who was from Cape Verde um, uh, in West Africa and grew up in Guinea-Bissau. Like many of these uh, sort of revolutionaries and militants, educated in the European core, so that was in Portugal. He was trained as an agronomist in Lisbon. Came back to Guinea-Bissau in 1952. At that point, had been involved in sort of anti-fascist uh, student activism in Lisbon, but hadn't really been involved in much um, African liberation struggles. Came back in 52. Worked as an agronomist carried out a census, the first census of Guinea-Bissau, in which he kind of mapped the, the, the terrain, the geology, the types of agricultural production, got to become very acquainted with the, the cultures and people of Guinea-Bissau. Um, 1952, he also set up this experimental farm in Pasube. Previously, it had been a kind of a colonial garden, so they produced uh, food for the colonial administrators. He took it over and he used it to experiment with different types of crops that could be grown outside of the farm, that could be, you know, become part of Guinea-Bissau's uh, agricultural economy. He created kind of interfaces with uh, farmers, between farmers and scientists. And then in 1956, he set up the PIGC, which was the African Party for the Independence of Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau. Initially, it was not violent, but the Portuguese uh, colonial powers far more uh, 
far more violent and aggressive than, than, than Britain, France, Germany, uh, and there was a, a very long drawn out violent struggle during the 60s, so from about 63 to 74, there was a, 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 a revolutionary struggle that uh, Cabral was at the heart of. And as part of that struggle, he sort of brought together army soldiers with farmers. And you know, all, all across uh, Guinea-Bissau and also in Angola and Mozambique, where he was also active, there was this idea that uh, kind of you know, agronomy and national liberation struggle were very much synthesized, very much part of each other. Um, there's a lovely work that I, I would point you to by Felipe Cesar. Um, uh, I think she's a Spanish artist, and she's written some lovely pieces and produced this beautiful film called Meteorizations, which is about, she kind of looked in depth at uh, Cabral's ag agronomy, his actual kind of technical work on agronomy, including a, a piece called um, In Defense of the Earth, which he wrote in 1952. Um, but uh, a lot of what he's trying to, he's sort of theorizing and developing new kinds of language and concepts, including this concept of groundwork, to think about is that, you know, the, the, the quality of the soil and, uh, you know, the quality of the land in Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde and all, all these other kind of uh, colonies that he was active in are um, sort of uh, truncated and fettered by the colonial economic relationship. And the only way that these soils can be repaired, land can be repaired, and people, is through breaking with that colonial relationship and then thinking about what comes next. And so what comes next for him is something that would draw on indigenous knowledge, just in this quote here, about the environment and indigenous technologies, but also be very much a modern agricultural and economic project. So one that could draw on advanced technologies. I think there's something about this particular chapter, not just in his work or anti-colonial thinkers' work, but also in Europe, if you look at other thinkers, who are really trying to think about technology, labor, you know, modernity, in ecological terms, which doesn't require some kind of uh, romantic hearkening back to the past and doesn't require some kind of um, you know, reproduction of the kind of destructive uh, you know, projects of of European modernity. That seemed a really interesting, exciting sort of place to sort of uh, look at in more detail or further. So I'm going to end with this um, in terms of the contribution and get to some questions. Um, the book ends with, with this, really. So it starts with this, which is the, 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 a film Don't Look Up from a couple of years ago, which was a kind of satire about climate change and how nothing gets done. And there's something about the film which obviously touched on the zeitgeist, which is a, a kind of a, a sense of frustration, a sense of apathy, a sense that like, despite all the knowledge we have, nothing changes. And even though we are sympathetic to that, it's also, uh, you know, limited. I mean, it's not least as it limited in that it reproduces some of the tropes of modern environmentalism, the key protagonist is a scientist, a white scientist. Uh, it's very much about trying to make governments aware of the problem in order to change things. Uh, climate change is replaced with meteor, which suggests it's some kind of natural event. There's no social movements. There's no anti-colonial movements. There's no anti-racist movements. So in a sense, the, the book is trying to sort of respond to that and think about how today also there are lots of other places to look if we care to look at them. 
which may not be climate activism, or may not define themselves in envi as environmental movements, but they are very much about protecting environments. And so uh, the example we talk about is the visit in Ireland uh, last year of uh, indigenous water protectors from Standing Rock who came to visit the Sperrins in Tyrone, who were fighting a gold mine. They also toured around Belfast and Derry and Leitrim. So there's something even about connecting across the border, which is significant. And then this picture here with the, the Palestinian flag in the, in the background, and what's happening obviously today in Palestine and in Gaza, I think it's a, you know, it's not something to go into today, but I think that it is a really important example of where um, anti-colonial struggle is an ecological struggle. And that there are, <coughs> there is obviously a, a huge amount of solidarity with Palestine at the moment and public sort of support for what's happening to Palestine and the Palestinian people. But that also has to be understood as, a, as an ecological battle and about climate justice and about food justice and food sovereignty and so on. Um, and that isn't always that obvious, and it's partly not that obvious because of the ways in which modern environmentalism has developed. So the work is trying to articulate these struggles which don't seem that related to link them with ecological questions. Um, and that is both an academic question, but also I think more so an aesthetic, an aesthetic question. So I'll finish there, and um, hopefully there'll be some questions. Thank mm -hmm. you.